0: Good morning. Good morning. I feel uh, very blessed to uh, be able to be with, here with you this morning and to share with you from God's Word. And what I hope to do over the next couple of weeks is to share with you some profound truths from the letter to the Ephesians. Now the letter to the Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul in about 62 AD, and that's at least what most scholars believe. And it was written while he was in prison in Rome. And we know from the book of Acts, chapter 19, that Ephesus was a city that had a fascination with magic and the occult. So the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding cities existed amidst a culture that was very pagan. Not all unlike the culture that we live in here today. Now, as I thought about how I wanted to go through the Bible this year, I wanted to do something a little different. So instead of doing what I normally do, which is uh, I pick out a reading plan, and typically a reading plan will take you through the entire Bible. Uh, It gives you a couple of different chapters from different books of the Bible every day. So instead of doing that, I took the advice of a friend who suggested that I pick one book of the Bible and go through that book every day for 20 days straight. And the idea here is that by doing that, you become intimately familiar with what God is saying to his people in that book. And my friend said something very interesting. He said that usually by about the 10th day or so, you start to see things in that letter or that book that you hadn't seen before. And that's exactly what happened to me with the letter to the Ephesians. And I was on about day 12 or so, I think, when, when Ron had asked me to preach. And the very next day, as I was reading Ephesians, this particular text just jumped out at me. And I remember thinking to myself, when did Paul write this? Because what astounded me is that I had read this passage 12 times for 12 consecutive days straight, and it wasn't until that day that I had saw what I saw. So my hope for you today as I bring forth God's word is that you see the same thing that I saw in this passage. And if there's one thing that I want you to take away from today, if there's one thing, if you take nothing else away today, I want you to take away that, that the immeasurable greatness of God's power is displayed In the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I'll say that again. The immeasurable greatness of God's power is displayed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I believe that this one act, this one display, is a greater revelation of his power than anything else we see in the entire Bible. And I'm going to go through why I believe that in a moment, Now, last Saturday night, my family and I were were visiting some friends at their campsite on Indian Island, and it was an exceptionally clear night. And Indian Island, is far enough away from any lights that when you look look up at the sky, you can see the stars clearly. And um, although, you know, I was looking up at the stars, and and they were really bright, and I thought to myself, how different must this have been for Abraham? Because no matter how far you are away from the lights, we're still in New York. So Though there's, there's really no escape. There's light pollution everywhere. So as clear as that sky was, there's no way that it was as clear as it was on the night when, when God took Abraham outside and told him to number the stars. So I pictured Abraham looking up at the stars, looking up at the sky, and seeing that the stars were too numerous to be counted, and marveling at the awesome display of God's power in his creation. When by the very power of his word... God called the heavens and the earth into existence, ex nihilo, which simply means out of nothing. So God spoke, and there was light, where before there was nothing but darkness. And that was absolutely a great display of God's power. But I don't believe it was as great as the power that we see when God raised Jesus from the dead. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to, we're going to take a look at that passage. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to be re, uh, reading verses 15 through 23. So if, you turn, if you're using a pew Bible, if you turn to page 1390, that's where you'll find our text. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to take us through this passage, and my hope is to show you next week, we're going to go into Ephesians 2, and my hope is to show you how God or what God uses this power to accomplish in the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ. So if you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, or chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for allowing us to gather here together this morning as your people to meet with you in this place. Lord, I I thank you for allowing us to worship you with our songs and our prayers. And through the ministry of your word, I pray that you bring forth your word today with power. I pray, Lord, that you open the eyes of our hearts, that you enlighten them, so that we may, we may know the immeasurable greatness of your power. Father, I pray that you quiet our minds and that you calm our spirits so that we may, we may receive your word and be changed. And Lord, as I bring forth your word this morning, I just pray that I fade into the background and at the preaching of your word, at the sound of your word, the Lord Jesus be exalted, that he be magnified, that he be glorified. And it's in his mighty name, that I pray. Amen. So as we look at the text this morning, there are essentially three main things that we see going on here. There are three things, and they're broken into two different groups. So in the first group, so in the first group, we see that Paul is praying for the Ephesians, we see that he's praying for them. And then in the same group, in the second point, we see that what he is praying for. And then in the third point, which is in a separate group, we see that we see what becomes of Jesus after Ephesians. The resurrection. So we're going to spend some time this morning uh, tying all of these things together. And like I said before, next week we're going to look at what this immeasurably great power of God accomplishes for sinners in salvation. So the first thing that we see is that we see Paul is praying for the saints in Ephesus. He's praying for them. And Paul is praying for them because he's concerned that they're, exper- that they're not experiencing the power of God in their lives, that they don't know his power firsthand the way that they should or the way that they could. Now this may be a reality for many of us sitting here today that that we're simply not experiencing the power of God. We don't know the power of God in our lives today. We may know it intellectually. We may know it in our our minds, but we may not know it in an experiential way. His power isn't real to us in our everyday lives. So Paul is praying that God enlighten the eyes of their hearts giving them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And he's praying this so that they may know his power. And the reason that they need the eyes of their hearts enlightened is because they become blind to the spiritual realities at work in their lives. They suffer from spiritual blindness. And we know that it's spiritual blindness and not physical blindness because Paul prays that God enlighten the eyes of their hearts. And the word heart is used over a thousand times in the Bible. It's the most common anthropo- anthropological term in all of Scripture. And it denotes the center of, of a person's being. So it's, it's not always talking about the organ in the center of our chest that's pumping blood through our bodies. It's talking about the, the very center of our physical, emotional, and intellectual selves. The heart is talking about our inner beings. So Paul is talking about having the center of their inner beings, the center of their, their emotions and their, their, their physical and moral activities enlightened which means that there's something that's dulling their hearts. Now, how does this happen? How do we become spiritually blind? I think it's because of a few reasons. And the first reason, I think, is because of the culture that we live in, the culture that we live in. And I think that as Westerners, the idea of evil spiritual forces are at work uh, in the world is a completely foreign concept. However, in places like Asia and in Africa and Latin America, most places around the world, the idea of a conflict between spiritual good and spiritual evil is not out of, it's, it's quite normal. It's not out of the ordinary at all. And many people in many parts of the world actually believe that this helps them to make sense of reality. But not here in the West. Here in the West, we insist that everything has to have a natural cause. Everything has to have a scientific explanation. This is the Western mindset. And several years ago, a man by the name of Andrew Delbanco, who's a secular liberal, and and he's the director of American Studies at Columbia University, he wrote a book. And the book is called The Death of Satan. And he says in the first line of the book, a gulf has opened in in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. And then he goes on to say this, we've jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in that. In fact, we don't even like to use the word evil. And the reason we don't like it is that it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. So we use medical terms instead. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. And we don't use moral terminology. But, Delbanco says, as the 20th century has gone on, it has gotten harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. What he's basically saying is our intellectual society has no explanation for these things whatsoever. It's beyond the terminology. It's, it's spiritual. But it's the Western mindset. It's, it's what we see everywhere in the culture around us. You see, Satan wants us to be unaware of the evil spiritual forces at work in the world. He wants us to be blind to this reality. And it makes me think of, uh, I remember a quote from the movie The Usual Suspects. In the movie, the uh, character Verbal Kent, who we later find out is the main villain, Kaiser Soze, he says when describing this deception that he's part of, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. So that's the first thing that causes spiritual blindness, I think. And the second thing is sin, obviously. So our own sin causes... Spiritual blindness. Because the fact is, despite, despite point number one, is as Christians, we at least recognize, at least at the intellectual level, we recognize that, that the devil is a real personal spiritual being, that there are demonic forces at work in the world. We know this. But our own sin makes us blind to that reality. So sin in the life of a Christian causes us to become spiritually blind. And lastly, I think that there's a particular sin that causes this, and that's the sin of idolatry. We become like the idols that we worship. We see Jesus addressing the issue of spiritual blindness in Matthew chapter 13. In verse 13, when he's talking about the Pharisees, he says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. So we know that Jesus is talking about, obviously he's talking about the the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, but we see God make this same charge against Israel all throughout the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 115, verses 4 through 6, we read, The idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. We read all throughout the Old Testament of Israel chasing after pagan gods made out of wood and metal and the futility of this. They utterly turn away from God and their hearts become hard against him. It's really no different for us today. In fact, in a lot of ways it's worse because our idols aren't as obvious as statues carved out of wood or gold or silver. Instead, we idolize things like money or comfort or possession or how well our children are doing in this or that, or the opinions of others. So our idols are a lot more deceptive. They're not so obvious. And we, like the Pharisees, like Israel, we become like the idols that we worship. We have eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear. And because of this, we become spiritually blind. We're not fully aware of the dulling, deadening power of sin. We're not fully aware of the magnitude of the demonic power that's coming against us. We're not fully aware of the immeasurable greatness of the power of God toward us in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see, we forget that we're engaged in spiritual warfare. Paul tells us later on in in chapter 6 of Ephesians that that they are to put on the full armor of God so that they are able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He tells us in in verse 12 of chapter 6 that We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But I want you to notice something. Take a look back at verse 21 of of, of chapter 1. That same rule and authority and power and dominion that we wrestle against, it's the same rule, authority and power and dominion that God has seated Christ far above. Paul mentions every, virtually every dimension of authority and strength that we could recognize in this world, from political rule to physical might to spiritual forces in this age and in the one to come, and says simply that Christ is greater than them all. He says something similar in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, where he writes, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As Christians who are in Christ, Where Christ is seated far above, those of us who are his are seated there also. And we're going to talk about that in more detail next week. But how easy is it to forget about this? How easy is it for for us to forget about our identity in Christ? We forget what it means that in the resurrection, God has raised Christ and seated him at his right hand. And for those of us who are united to him by faith, he raised us up also and seated us with him, Far above these demonic forces that wage war against us, and it's understandable why we forget this. It's it's, it's easy to see why we would forget it. We don't see we we become spiritually blind, and we don't you know we we go through these trials in our everyday lives. We experience trials and, and tribulations, and because of this, we don't see the power of God working through those trials and through those tribulations. We don't see the power of God using our trials to conform us more and more into the likeness of his Son. And in Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we need to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. We need a spirit of wisdom and of the revelation of God if we're going to know this power, if we're going to experience his power. And Paul is praying this for the Ephesians, and we should be praying this for each other as well, that God give us the same thing. And God does this through the power Of His Holy Spirit. In First Corinthians chapter two, verses six through twelve, we read, "Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Not of the rulers of this age; none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But it is written." Now we have re- received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So it is the Holy Spirit that reveals truth and the spirit that searches everything, even the depths of God. Now imagine that for a second. If you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the same spirit that indwells us as believers is, is the same spirit that searches even the depths of of God. I mean, think how staggering that is for a moment. I mean, can you imagine searching the, even the depths of God? It's funny because I, I read we read something later in Ephesians in chapter chapter three that's equally amazing, where Paul prays that they be feel, filled with all the fullness of God. And when you think about it, it's staggering to be filled with all the fullness of God. But that's what Paul prays. The second thing that we see here is in verse eighteen. It says, "Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened." that you may know. So, God, so Paul here lists three things that he wants us to know. The first thing that he wants us to know is the hope to which he has called us. The hope to which he has called us. The second thing he wants us to know is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And finally, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, before we get into those things, I just want to stop for a moment and talk about the knowing that Paul is praying for here. Paul isn't praying for a mere intellectual knowing, but a conscious, experiential knowing. Paul isn't talking about the kind of knowing that the devil has. See, in one sense, the devil knows these three things that I just mentioned. So Paul isn't praying for that kind of knowledge. It's the difference between knowing this stuff in the carton over there is strawberry ice cream because it says it on the label, and knowing that it's strawberry ice cream because you've tasted it. It's a different kind of knowing. So Paul isn't saying that we get our calling or we become heirs or or get the power. He's saying that you have the calling. You are the heirs. You have the power of God toward you. And you don't know it as you could or as you should. He's praying that we become spiritually and experientially conscious of God's power toward us as believers now. And I pray the same prayer for us here today, that the Spirit of God may enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may know this same power as well, so that we may see Christ all the more glorious, that he may kindle the affections of our hearts and draw our affections upward toward him, that he may be magnified and that we may know his power in our lives. So Paul wants us to know three things here. Like I mentioned earlier, the first thing is that we know the hope to which he has called us. So what is this hope? It's the same hope that Peter spoke about in First Peter chapter one, verse three, where he writes, "We are born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." That's the same hope that Paul's talking about: Hope through the resurrection, Hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfailing, kept in heaven for you." Paul spoke, spoke of the same hope in Romans chapter eight, verses 24 through 25, where he writes, "We, we wait eagerly for, the, for adoption as sons." the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we are saved so the hope is adoption as sons the hope is the redemption of our bodies he goes on in romans 8:28 through 30 these are very familiar verses that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose that we might be conformed to the image of his son that we are now justified and will one day be glorified the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2-5, through 5, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So this is the hope to which we are called, that we, are, we will be made like Christ, that our bodies will be redeemed, they will be glorified, made imperishable. That this world and this life is not all that there is. One commentator writes, we recognize the significance of that hope when we hear the voices of our world that do not have it. The pop lyrics of the spiritually seeking but yet unseeing musical group Vertical Horizon speaks of this or speaks of what it means to have run out of hope. Their song, Lines Upon Your Face, laments, sometimes I wish that we all were immortal." And the game of life always had a happy ending. But I know it's not true. But it is true. The truth of the gospel is that we are immortal. Our time is eternal. And for those who put their faith in the eternal God who controls this world, there is a happy ending. And he's right. You see, we who believe will have eternal life. Not only that, an eternity spent with our Savior in in who we hope we, as Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, we will obtain the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. See, there's an end. There will be an end to the futility of this world. There's a purpose to the world. There is pardon for sin and power over it provided by God. This is the hope that Paul prays the Ephesians would see, and we should pray for the same. And I pray that today. The second thing we see that Paul prays for the Ephesians is that they know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now this right here, this is a staggering truth that God would treasure as his inheritance, a gathering of people who were once dead in their trespasses and objects of his wrath. See, in Psalm 2, verses 7 through 8, speaking of Jesus, who's the messianic heir of David, the psalmist writes, The Lord said to me, You are my Son.'" Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In Colossians 2.13 it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. See, Paul's talking about the Gentiles there when he says uncircumcision. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It says in Ephesians 2, 3 that we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We read further in Ephesians 5, 22 through 27, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So what these verses are saying is that we were once dead in our sins and trespasses. We were once enemies of God and objects of his wrath. But because Christ treasured us as his inheritance, he gave himself up for us to set us apart, to make us holy, to cleanse us so that he might present his bride to himself in splendor, without spot or blemish. See, in eternity past, God the Father promised God the Son an inheritance, a bride, a possession, and Christ would not be denied his inheritance. F.F. Bruce speaks of the spiritual encouragement that God grants us by telling us how much he treasures us, that God should set aside that God should set such a high value on a community of sinners rescued from perdition and still bearing too many traces of their former state might well esteem incredible were it not made clear that he sees them in Christ. As from the beginning, he chose them in Christ. God's estimate of people of Christ, united to him by faith and partakers of his resurrection life, is inevitably consistent with his estimate of Christ. Paul prays that there are eternal purposes through them as the first fruits of the reconciled universe of the future in order that the, their lives may be in keeping with this high calling and that they may accept in great humility the grace and glory thus lavished on them. Beloved, I pray that you are immeasurably comforted and encouraged by this truth. Paul is praying that God enlighten the hearts of the Ephesians so that they may know this. And I pray this morning that we know this too. The third thing that Paul is praying for, for the Ephesians, is to know this, and and what I believe is really the point of this entire passage, that God enlighten the eyes of their hearts so that they may know his immeasurable greatness or the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul emphasizes the importance of power in this section by making it the last of the three things that we are to see with these enlightened hearts or the enlightened eyes of our hearts. He also emphasizes the importance of power by using the expression immeasurably, great when describing it. The concept of power, is, is, it's a repeated theme in the letter to the Ephesians. And we see Paul make mention of it in chapter 3, verse 7, where he writes, Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. We see this also in verse 16 of chapter 3, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being which is our hearts, which which is what we've been talking about. And again, he says that in verse 20 of chapter 3, he writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. There are more examples that I can mention, but by drumming up this theme repeatedly, Paul calls the Ephesians to reject the pagan notions of cultic and magical power, and also to encounter the heavenly and earthly powers that are at odds with Christ, And to face them in the strength of the Lord. Paul is praying for the Spirit to enlighten their eyes so that they may be aware of the forces that work against them, and at the same time remember that they can face opposition to their faith only by claiming the power that God now avails to believers. This power is present and available to us now through the Holy Spirit, even though because of our spiritual blindness we may not see it. It exists in a spectrum of light not visible. To eyes of the flesh, so we should pray as Paul does for the Ephesians that our senses be made receptive by the Spirit, so that we can face our earthly challenges with divine power. Seeing this power, knowing that this power is available to us in the everyday challenges of our lives, should give us hope. There is hope for our fallen condition, hope for our sin-sick world, and hope for our sin-bound souls, because the power of Christ that is out—it's ours but we need, our, we need our eyes enlightened so that we may see it. So how do you make spiritual power apparent to God's people who are preoccupied and oppressed by this material world? As I was preparing this message, I came across a story relayed by Dr. Brian Chappell, who is a, a preacher and a teacher and an author. And it, he, he, um, in it, he writes, I am told that one therapy utilized by those who treat autistic children is to cloud the lower half of their glasses. Certain kinds of autism apparently manifests itself as a child becomes completely focused on some dimension of his experience. Such a child can become so focused on a, habitually, a habitual activity or familiar object that interacting with that single aspect of life becomes the child's entire world. Thus, glasses clouded on the bottom but clear in the upper lenses force the child to look up, to take his eyes off of his little world, and consider a greater, wider world. That's exactly what Paul does in the final verses of this section. He exhorts us to take our eyes off of this little material world and set them instead upon Christ. In Colossians 3, 1-4 we read, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, in this first group, that's the first group, we see that Paul is praying for the Ephesians to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they may know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us. And in the second and final group, Paul argues that this immeasurably great power of God can be seen in what became of Jesus after. God raised him from the dead. He he says in verses 19 through 20 that this immeasurably, immeasurably great power was according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So this power that is at work on our behalf is resurrection power. And what's important to recognize here is that the resurrection of Jesus was unlike any other resurrection seen in the Bible. The other resurrections that we see in the Bible, while certainly miraculous acts of God's power, are not like the resurrection of Jesus. For example, we read about Elijah raising the widow's son in the Old Testament. We've read about Jesus restoring life to Jarius' daughter who had died, and more famously, raising Lazarus, who had been lying dead in a tomb for four days, to life. The other resurrections that we see in the Bible While certainly acts of God's miraculous power are different from the resurrection of Jesus. Beloved, while these are certainly examples of that resurrection power of God, we must realize that these people were raised to life only to die again. But not Jesus. Jesus wasn't merely raised like the widow's son or Jerias' daughter or Lazarus. Jesus was raised imperishable, never to die again. In his death, burial, and resurrection, the eternal Son of God paid the price for our sin, and by doing so, conquered once and for all all the curse of sin and broke the power of death for those who believe. And when God raised him from the dead, he said, Payment accepted. In the resurrection of Jesus, the enemy, death was defeated. Beloved, one day we're going to die. But as I've heard John Piper say, and I love the way that he he puts this, this poisonous event has become a pathway to paradise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 57, we read, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this power, this is the power that is available toward us now. When we turn from our sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, God grants us a new life. He gives us a new heart that loves God. And as Peter writes, we are born again into a living hope. And while one day we will die physically, the day will come when we will be raised again in glory to eternal life when our Lord Jesus returns in victory to claim his inheritance. The next thing we see here is that God seated Jesus at his right hand above all rule and authority and power and dominion. We talked about this earlier, about, we talked earlier about spiritual warfare and how in Ephesians 6, Paul mentions virtually every dimension of authority that we could recognize in this world. In the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, God seated him at his right hand, which is it's a position of authority and power, which is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And as we talk, we'll talk about next week, not only has God seated Jesus there, but as believers, us with him. We are seated there with Christ. So while there are battles to be fought in this life, the victory is ultimately won in Christ. Next, and this is really a continuation of the previous point, we see that God has put all things under his feet. In Isaiah 66, 1, we read, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth my footstool. This again points to the, to the devil-defeating, victorious power of God, which is immeasurably great, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. In 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-seven, Paul writes, "For God has put all things under His feet. In the resurrection, Christ has been exalted as ruler over all things. But you see, there's a tension that we see here. There's a tension, because, like I mentioned a moment ago, there are still battles." To be fought. The natural question to ask is, if everything has been put under his feet, if everything has been made subject to him, why is there still evil in the world? Why do we still suffer now? Why do we still sin now? Why do we still wage war against the forces of evil now? And that's a great question. There's this concept that we see when we study the Bible, when we study the scriptures. It's called the tension between the already and the not yet. And what that means is certain things are a present reality, but not fully. We've been given a taste of these things now. We've been given a glimpse of the victory to come. But ultimately, we won't experience them fully until Christ returns in glory. We see this in the salvation of believers. We are saved now in one sense, but we are still being saved in another. We see this repeatedly in 1 Corinthians. We see it. In chapter 1, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 15, and in 15, verse 2. Satan is defeated now, but he still roams around like a lion, looking for people to devour. We read in 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 15, verses 22 through 25. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So we see from this passage, like the ones that we're going through in Ephesians today, that Christ has been raised above all these powers and authorities in the world, that everything has been placed in subjection to him and made his footstool. But we also see that some of these things have yet to be worked out in the fullness of time. The final, ultimate victory won't be realized until our Lord returns in glory. And lastly, we see that God has given Christ as head over all things to the church. So all of the things that we've been talking about, the immeasurable greatness of God's power displayed in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and him being seated at the right hand of God, far above the rule and authority, and and all the things being made his footstool, these things have been given to Christ, in Christ to the church. It's been given to God's people, to his bride. The power that is at work on our behalf is church power. What Christ is doing here with his power is for the church. We might expect Paul to say that what God has done in Christ is for believers or, or for you instead of for the church. And, and that's certainly true. These things have been done for us. But that's not Paul's point here. Paul's point is that Christ so closely identifies himself with his people that at the judgment, people will be judged based on how they treat his people. How people treat Christians will be counted as if that's how they treated Christ himself. We see this in Matthew chapter 25. The church is his very body. Much as Adam described Eve as bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and and God declared man and wife to be one flesh, so is it with Christ and his bride. We see this. We see we see the, this close identity between Christ and His bride in Acts chapter nine, at the conversion of of Saul, the apostle Paul, who was then Saul of Tarsus. Jesus asked Saul, "Why are you persecuting me?" Well, Saul didn't even know Jesus while he was physically walking on the earth, let alone persecute him. So, what did Jesus mean there? Christ took Saul's persecution of the church as persecution of Him. In Hebrews chapter 6, we see that one of the ways as Christians that we express love for God is in serving the saints. We see that in verse 10. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, we read, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So John starts out by telling us to love one another and that whoever loves is born of God. Whoever doesn't love doesn't know God. God's love for us, and then he talks about how we also ought to love one another. And it's odd, because out of nowhere, then he says no one has ever seen God. Doesn't that seem a little out of place? John's going on about love and love and love and love, and then all of a sudden, no one has seen God. I've often wondered about that. And what John is telling us here is that one of the ways that we experience God is through relationships with other Christians, through each other in the church. So if you want to see God, if you want to feel God, be intimate with each other. You experience the love of God in the love relationships within the body of Christ. In the love relationships of the Christian community. That's how you experience it. So when we come together in prayer, when we encourage each other, when we share in each other's trials and tribulations, when we cry with one another, when we laugh with one another, we are experiencing Jesus. We are experiencing the resurrection power of Jesus as head of the church. Beloved, my prayer for us today is the same as Paul's for the Ephesians. That the Spirit of God enlightens the eyes of our hearts so that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. I want us to experience this power. I want us to know this power. But we need to be awakened to the spiritual battles going on around us, to the demonic forces that wage war against us to the power of idolatry and sin in our lives. The powers that work against us, the powers that are in this world, the flesh and the devil. We need to see these things as the realities that they are. We need to recognize that while sin was defeated at the cross, it still remains to be fought. We need to recognize that while Satan and the demonic forces of this world have been conquered, there is still a battle that remains. As believers, the way that we fight this battle is by faith. We are to walk by faith, not by sight. We are to fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And in doing so, we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, just for your glorious word. I thank you for the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ and what you showed us and how you showed us the immeasurable greatness of your power and raising him from the dead. And I just pray, Lord, that you open the eyes of our hearts, that you enlighten our minds to this reality. And I just thank you for all these things and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.